This is July 21st, 2019, and uh, trying to uh, hold these papers down in front of me uh, from the fans that are on, and that actually is how I want to begin this taste show, is to talk about uh, zento, zendo ventilation and, uh, and how it's just one of any infinite number of ways to apply uh, Dharma principles. So we are, as we said in the recent Sangha, uh, yesterday I think, we sent, the day before, we sent out a, a Sangha email mentioning that uh, we do use uh, air conditioning now in the Zendo in the hottest, um, most humid nights. And um, I, I have no idea how many people are cheering this and how many people are lamenting that we have fallen uh, into uh, self-indulgence. And uh, so that's where I want to start, is uh, what, what's going on here? Uh, the... the Buddhism is often called the middle way. But what's tricky about that is that different people find the middle in different places. And um, I'm sure there are other teachers, Zen teachers, who would think it's anathema to have ever, on um, even the hottest, most humid days, to have air conditioning in the Zendo. But I, I feel very clear about this um, because I've been reflecting on it for years and especially now when so few people come to sittings it's been a big drop off in sittings for the last year or two three and uh, naturally turning over my mind why that might be and I have come up with a whole slew of reasons why that might be most of it involving social media uh, but and I'm going to get to that in a, a, a Teisho, another Teisho soon but uh, meanwhile, we have this global warming, uh, and uh, what is appropriate, what is skillful uh, here in terms of ventilation and air conditioning? Okay, um, one thing is that uh, I believe, I can't be sure, but I believe that more and more in our sangha, more and more people in our sangha have become accustomed to having air conditioning at work and uh, also at home. I'm just making an educated guess based on the reading I do. Uh, and that would make it maybe just a little harder to leave that home air conditioning to uh, come to a sweltering zendo. And I think it's there's great value, great value to sitting with others. Just maybe to state what is obvious to everyone, or almost everyone, when we're sitting with others, we, each one of us has more purchase on our practice. Each one of us can draw from the pooling of energy of sitting with others especially sitting with others in a zendo, a room dedicated to 
zazen, a room that is steeped in uh, meditative power, uh, the meditative power of of 50-some years of meditation. (coughs) Uh, For myself, I realized decades ago that I would always rather sit, all all other factors being equal, I'd rather sit with others here in this zendo than sitting at home. No question about it. And I've heard from many others who feel the same way. And so, how to how to encourage people to come here is is my main concern. And uh, in, in in coming to this uh, occasional use of air conditioning in the zendo, I had to discard. Uh, Japanese conditioning. Uh, my experience in my six months in Japan and, and my many discussions with Roshi Capo about Japanese Zen training and uh, th- other things I've read uh, suggests that the Japanese place great value in enduring physical discomfort, enduring pain, enduring suffering. Some might say there's real attachment to suffering, to pain, uh, physical that is, physical pain, suffering. And I, I can't say that it's completely, there's nothing, be- nothing of value behind this. We know, we know from our contending with physical pain in the, while we're sitting, we know that there is value, at least if you've been doing this long enough, you know there's value to just sucking it up and dealing with physical discomfort. And, uh, and what we learn is that by becoming one with it, uh, we find a way to through it. We find a way to manage it. With the pain in the knees or the back or the hips or anywhere else, we find that we can get on the other side of it in a way. We don't have to get rid of it. We just find a way by becoming one with the breath or with the koan that we can change our relationship to the, the pain, the physical pain. Well, naturally, this would be the same with extremes of heat and humidity and cold. But we have to be realistic too. We, as Americans, as Westerners, I would suggest, we have different conditioning, and um, we we don't want to ask of our people uh, what they're not capable, or what that most of them are not capable of uh, reaching. So, of course, we're talking here about finding finding this balance where uh, where we're not we're not sitting in barca loungers where we can completely eliminate all pain uh, we're not sitting in absolutely perfect temperature uh, pretty much any time of the year so there's our chance there we can employ our practice uh, to discover that 
all discomfort and all pain passes. It passes. It's a huge, huge, valuable lesson that we wouldn't learn if we could just flee from discomfort and pain. Okay, most of you know this. You know it very well. Um, and yet here we have this, this um, what I think is a, a certain point where uh, it, can, it can be worth some air conditioning, and of course heat in the, in the, in the winter, to, uh, to bring people here, or to, make, to not, not give people an excuse not to come, let's put it that way. It's called upaya, skillful means. Someone once said regarding temperature in the Zendo that sitting without moving is plenty uncomfortable. And I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of people, it's all they can do to come here and sit for 35 minutes or 30 minutes without moving. And there, there's your chance. Uh, and that we don't need to make it too much more uncomfortable uh, here in the Zendo. We're uh, still experimenting a little bit with uh, the when to employ the fans and when to employ the air conditioning. Uh, we discovered just this week that we don't want to try, that the air conditioning is not uniform through the Zendo without fans. So that's our first learning, uh, is that if there's air conditioning, then there's going to be fans. because. Uh, the farthest corner from the air conditioning unit is quite different unless fans are stirring up the air. And we're uh, refining a, a temperature humidity scale um, so that it's not so subjective. That's something we learned long ago is that uh, different people have different tolerance for cold and for heat and for humidity. And um, we've got the We've got the, the technology, we got, we got the internet to see, let's make this more scientific, more empirical. And um, so that's what we're now, we're consulting. We printed out this uh, temperature humidity scale uh, that we now have under the head monitors mat that we'll be uh, working from and maybe refining a little bit. Uh, because as surely everyone knows, who's more than five years old, the, you can have you can it can be 85 degrees and low, with low humidity it's pretty comfortable and vice versa so it's uh, finding that sweet spot that we're, we're trying to do without getting attached to comfort we're trying to be attached to neither comfort nor discomfort that's how I see uh, it makes sense that's the middle way as I understand it other other teachers would perhaps see it differently Um, Roshi Kaplow's words come to me now and then and now where uh, he said sometimes you have to give people what they want in order for them to want what you have to give them <coughs> so there's a, there's a place for compromise there's a place for um, acknowledging be re realistic and uh, yielding in certain areas in order for people uh, to, to in this case to get people here uh, to sit with others and uh, and and 
maybe or maybe not hear a talk of some kind that can just possibly tweak something or open a little a little aperture in their understanding of the Dharma. But even without without the any kind of talk, uh, still just the experience of sitting with others. This is why uh, Zen has been practiced in communities uh, throughout history, largely. Well, we have a new a new world here in the West, uh, in the Americas, in Europe, where uh, it's become largely a householder practice, and and obviously a lot of people don't have the time. They can't find a way to get here for sittings. Okay, fair enough, but uh, let's let it, not let it be because it's insufferably hot here. Now, in the remaining time, this won't be my longest day show, but the remaining time, I'm going to read from a tricycle article uh, from uh, 2016, summer of 2016, uh, called The Grace in This World. And it's an interview with the Venerable Chua San, the former head Dharma master of the Wan Buddhist order, W-O-N Buddhist order. And what attracted me to this is that it just gives me a chance to compare and contrast this Wan, so-called Wan Buddhism with Zen and Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism more, more broadly. And um, this interview is by... Maybe it's by Emma Varvaluskas, the managing editor of Tricycle. So, just as an introduction, uh, this is the first time I've ever heard of this form of Buddhism or um, Buddhist-like uh, practice. It uh, goes back a hundred years, um, and it's Korean-based. Uh, and it says here it sprang from the Enlightenment of a modern-day Siddhartha. Siddhartha, the reference there, it's not Shakyamuni. He's not, he's not, the author is not comparing him to Shakyamuni, but to Siddhartha, who was, uh, whose, whose practice was fueled uh, by uh, basic fundamental human questions, and it came out of a period of asceticism, like uh, Siddhartha's six years. Uh, his dates, uh, the 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 um, there are two different guys here. The interview is with this uh, Chwasan, but this Wan Buddhism originated uh, with this uh, this guy who came to this enlightenment, uh, Sotai San. Uh, his dates are 1891 to 1943 who is said to have reached enlightenment in 1916 at the age of 26 and after years of ascetic practice. It was only after his enlightenment that he read the Diamond Sutra and found that many aspects of his own insights aligned with those of the Buddhas. And then he declared Shakyamuni to be his original guide and the, quote, antecedent of my dharma. And then he went on to create this Wan Buddhism. Wan, we're told here in Korean, means circle. And it's been 
variously described this Wan Buddhism as a reformed, renovated, or revitalized Buddha Dharma. Its purpose is to update Buddhist teachings to make them more relevant to contemporary society and more understandable to contemporary people. Oops, you can't fault that. That's that's what what uh, teaching is all about: is is making it accessible and making finding a way uh, to to yeah make it accessible to people of this time of this contemporary uh, society that we live in. The author, Emma, goes on to say, it's unclear whether Wan Buddhism, who had, which, whose following has been increasing worldwide, is really a new tradition of Buddhism or an entirely new religion. Wan Buddhists describe their tradition in both ways, and scholars seem equally undecided about the matter. Certainly, Wan Buddhism contains many elements that would be familiar to Mahayana Buddhists, but it also includes core teachings that would not be found in any other Buddhist sutra. And here's the gist of it. Wan Buddhism pays heavy emphasis, puts heavy emphasis on the integration of spiritual practice into daily life. Bravo. That's what we always want to do, is integrate our practice into our daily life, which is the hardest thing in the world. The hardest thing in the world. It's hard enough to, to, to become one with our practice uh, while sitting, but then to, to extend that mind of meditation that mind of that mind of stabilized awareness to extend it and in through our, our 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 daily life and integrating it into our daily life. This is a lifetime of effort and lifetimes of effort. I don't know anyone, I can't imagine anyone who is completely, perfectly mastered this. The mind tends to wander when we're engaged in our in our work, in our family life, in anything. So that's just what we have to do. It's a, it's the most, one of the most common uh, misunderstandings uh, among beginners is it's enough to sit an hour, half an hour, whatever each day, and then just leave it at that. Just go about one's life uh, without trying to bring the practice to mind in all of our activities. Um, and then the, the, this description of this Wan Buddhism continues. Unlike other Buddhist traditions, Wan does not place a high value on lengthy retreat time. Rather, sustained engagement with the external world is paramount. Wan Buddhists are known for their interfaith work as well as for their commitment to social issues. Again, bravo. But there is the possibility that the one's engagement with worldly things becomes a substitute for sitting, and this is where I think there's 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 a danger. 
because the the sitting is what gives us the centeredness and the space to engage more skillfully with social issues and politics and so forth. The sitting is essential. Some sitting every day. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. That's the root, the sitting. And as for lengthy, so-called lengthy retreat time, I wonder what lengthy would mean to one Buddhists. I know that in Korea, uh, like like China, uh, a three three retreats are they're more likely to be three months rather than just seven days. I think the value of a seven-day retreat, or even certainly shorter ones too, um, is indisputable. Anyone who's done more than one seven-day sashin knows that it opens up channels, it opens up portals to the mind. It, it, it reveals things about our nature and the nature of, of reality. It, it reveals things about our relationships that are not as likely to be revealed without extended sitting for two or four or five or seven days. And here she gets to the interview itself, this uh, venerable Chwasan, C-H-W-A-S-A-N, who is the fourth head Dharma master of the order, Here's, there's no Dharma transmission in Wan Buddhism. Its leaders are elected by a council composed of lay ministers and senior ministers who are also elected. Who knows, maybe this will be uh, the future of, uh, of Buddhist um, transmission, if you can call it that, in... Uh, democratic societies. I'm too concerned, though, about using popularity as a way to um, make teachers uh, because people can, people can be immensely popular without insight. And insight is, is the essence of it all. If you're if you're greatly popular, well, you have some kind of insight. You you have uh, at the very least high uh, social intelligence and emotional intelligence. That's a lot. You have insight into what what skillful ways of working with people, um, but it's not the same as seeing into shunyata, the the, the fundamental non-substantiality of all phenomena the no-thingness of things, the formlessness of form. That is something we, I think, just run a risk of, of losing if we rest on elections. 
this uh, Chuasan retired in 2006 after nine years of holding the position. He is now head Dharma Master Emeritus and lives in South Korea. And this article, this interview was translated by from the Korean. First question, what sort of reformations and renovations did Sote-san, that the, the original, that the, the founder of the school, uh, the one who came to enlightenment at age 26, what, what reformations and renovations uh, did he apply to the Buddhist teaching? And then Chua-san's reply, in the days when Sote-san attained great enlightenment, Korean society was dominated by confused ideology. So that was 1916. One of the characteristics of this confusion, for example, was the discrimination between men and women. Our founding master, very boldly for that time, abolished that discrimination. Yay! Bravo, 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 bravissimo. This is one of the great contributions, uh, not, not only by him, but by uh, Western uh, Zen Buddhist centers is to uh, have worked toward greater equality and recognition of the, uh, the fundamental equality uh, of, the, of the sexes. Uh, at our AZTA meetings, at least the last one I attended a few years ago, there are actually more women than, than men. But that also might be because women are more likely to collaborate and want to meet than men are. I have no idea what the, what the proportion of women to men is among teachers. Also, he continues, also, especially in Korean Buddhism, different schools have their own emphasis and their own way of practice. Well, of course, that's true here too, everywhere. A chanting school or a meditation school, for instance, yeah, that I don't see so much of in the United States, uh, where you have this division between the meditation monks and the chanting monks, the, the two kinds of specialization. Sote-san, the founder, wanted to gather that together to make a more balanced and complete practice. I think that's what we're doing here, what most Western Zen centers do. There were also a lot of formalities and unnecessary superstitious rituals. He wanted to get rid of those and to make the Buddha Dharma very practical and realistic. Well, I refer you back to air conditioning in the, in the Zendo. But about formalities, ceremonies, um, rituals, I've spoken about this in the past. It's another area where of, of ongoing examination uh, what is the most skillful balance of that uh, in our in our culture? And um, knowledgeable people, enlightened people, can disagree about that. Um, I followed largely what Roshi Kaplo did in eliminating some of the many, many, many bows bowing that happens in uh, Japanese temples and. Uh, Western temples that, that uh, adhere very closely to, to Japanese forms. Uh, we try to find English words uh, when they're suitable f 
for uh, Japanese or Chinese Korean words. Um, then you have teachers who are more conservative and teachers who are more likely to um, charge into uh, innovations. I would count myself as a little more on the conservative side. I, just because I have faith that over time things will settle out and we'll, we'll find our way just through trial and error. Question. You mentioned confused ideology. Religious leaders don't exist in a vacuum. They are always responding to the culture of their time. Certainly Shakyamuni Buddha was re responding to the culture of his time. Could you talk a little bit about the culture that Sote-san was responding to in 1916? Answer. The founding motto of Wan Buddhism, here it is, as material civilization develops, cultivate spiritual cultivation accordingly. Cultivate spiritual civilization. Let me do that over. As material civilization develops, cultivate spiritual civilization accordingly. So that's the, the founding motto. And that's, he, he says, when uh, this founding master was observing not just Korea, but the whole world, as technological and scientific development was advancing exponentially. Consequently, we modern people have lost our original nature and have become completely enslaved by material things. I would say also technological things. Our mind is no longer the master of itself. Instead, exter external things are dominating and directing our life. He continues, uh, Sote-san, this is again Chua-san, the, the contemporary guy, Sote-san thought this was a very sorry situation and wanted to emphasize that sh what should be a priority and what should be secondary. He said, priority is our mind and the spirit. What comes next is the material civilization. Well, this is just a commonplace. Uh, I don't think I need to comment on that. says, the master, the interviewee says, I would like to ask about that kind of mind that is enslaved by dazzling external materials. Do you also feel here in America as though you have this mind? And then the poor interviewer laughs and says, I'm here to interview you for a Buddhist magazine and look at me. I have my laptop, my phone, my recorder. I'm surrounded by so many electronic things that I would be upset to lose. I'd be upset to lose. So yes, we feel this way too. And then Chua-san speaks again. Material in and of itself is not bad. Feeble, weak mind is the problem. It's the source of all our suffering. He continues, the basic way to solve this problem in our contemporary society is to brighten and empower the mind. Sote-san used the analogy of a knife. A knife is neither a wholesome nor an unwholesome thing on its own. 
When a knife is used by a thief, it's a dangerous weapon. But when a knife is used by a great chef, it's a tool that transforms ingredients into wonderful food. So everything completely depends on a person's mind. Well, this knife analogy is, has been used in referring to technology, to digital devices and social media. It's, it, it cuts both ways. He continues, to intelligently utilize our material civilization is the direction of our one Buddhist practice. It starts from working with the mind, making the mind calm and peaceful and quieting it in order to hone our innate wisdom. His Holiness really emphasized practice. I guess he's referring to this Korean founder, not the Dalai Lama. His Holiness really emphasized practice, not just a daily practice or going for a certain period of time to some retreat center, but to become wholly devoted to training our mind so that our life itself becomes the grace in this world. I want to go back to a thing, a couple paragraphs ahead, uh, behind, where uh, I missed, I wanted to comment on, um, where he says, consequently we modern people have lost our original nature. To be clear, um, original nature, as it's generally used in Zen, is something we can't lose. That's our true nature, our essential nature. We can't lose our essence. But uh, no doubt what he means is uh, we, we lost our original nature. We've lost our, our sense of what is, what's real, what's true. Now here the next one is intriguing. The interviewer says, I want to go over some ways in which Wan Buddhism differs from mainstream Mahayana Buddhism. One of the most prominent things is the replacement of the Buddha image with a circle. You won't find, say, a statue of Shakyamuni in a Wan temple. Why? And he says the reason the Buddha image has been enshrined and worshipped all these years is to inspire people to model themselves after the Buddha's life. Okay, so far so good. And he says, but the Buddha image represents the Buddha's body. I don't see it that way. A Buddha figure represents our nature. A Buddha figure, a decently made Buddha figure, um, shows in form, in form and figure, the qualities of this formless true nature that we all share the straight back, the relaxed shoulders, the head back, the stable base, the three-pointed base with the knees and the seat, the open chest, the limbs gathered together in the middle. This, this is a concrete representation of our original mind, centered, grounded, erect, noble. But, aside from what he said, he says when the Buddha image is enshrined like this, people come to respect the form of Shakyamuni Buddha. Yeah, that's, that's a mistake that beginners make. They think that we're somehow um, 
it's an idol of some kind that we're worshiping just the man who lived in India 2,500 years ago. There's certainly that. That can be something we can pay reverence to, is, is his amazing journey. But uh, it's primarily uh, our own Buddha nature. That's what that figure represents. And then he goes on, however, the reason the Buddha is respected and venerated is not his physical body. The reason is his enlightened mind. So the circle symbolizes his enlightened mind as well as the enlightened mind of all people. When we enshrine the circle, it symbolizes that all people are eventually the Buddha, manifestations of ultimate reality. Now, uh, full disclosure here, I have toyed with the idea over the years of uh, placing, uh, instead of the Buddha figure on the altar, placing a a mirror, which is, I've heard, done in, in some Korean monasteries, maybe a lot of them, either a mirror, which is kind of cool when you think about it, as long as you're not grooming yourself in front of the mirror, applying <laughs> makeup, uh, but but here's another thing that would be kind of interesting to experiment with is uh, a circle. We know the circle represents this, this essential nature of ours, who we really are, the perfection of our, our true self. That's why we have the circle. It's the most important part of the rock suit that we wear. We have a giant circle, what the Japanese call an enzo, uh, at Chapin Mill that uh, is enormously inspiring in a, in a, in a non-verbal way. Uh, one, one reason I've, one of several reasons I've uh, not followed through with that experiment is because we have so many beautiful Buddha figures. And I do think that, that as you go on in practice, uh, you're, you become not attached to the appearance uh, and you come to see it as a reflection of your, yourself, capital S self. Uh, next question, uh, what about Wan Buddhism's understanding of why we suffer and the impetus for practice? Is it similar to mainstream Mahayana Buddhism? That is, we suffer because we're ignorant of the true state of reality, but there is a way to get out of this suffering. And uh, those are the uh, second, third, and fourth of the Four Noble Truths. And then just to cut to the chase here, he says, yeah, it's pretty much the same as that. But then he says, we try to make it a little more concrete, more practical. And then the interviewer asks, how? How do you make it more concrete, more practical? We emphasize doing meritorious, beneficial work for other people. We view our practice this way. Individually, we need to progress internally. We need to enhance our spirituality to become Buddhas. But externally, we need to treat other people well we should have a very good relationship with other people in order to live in harmony with others, to live a grateful life and to help society as a whole. Yeah, no quarrel with that. It's, and that should be an outgrowth 
of Zen practice. We should find ourselves in more harmonious uh, relationships with others. It's just maybe the difference is that there they make it more explicit as an injunction uh, to do this, to, to make a point of explicitly doing this. And uh, that, I'm sure, itself has merit. Questioner, you've used the term grace a couple of times today. The fourfold grace is integral to the one Buddhist teachings. What do you mean by grace, and how do you understand its role in our lives? He says, when our founding master said grace, he was referring to the indispensable relationship among all things, especially the one between ourselves and other people. We could say the, uh, the interconnectedness, the interdependence of all things. You could perhaps also translate the Korean term as gratitude. We categorize it into four classes. The first is the grace or gratitude of heaven and the grace of heaven and earth or of the universe and nature or we could say gratitude for that. The second is the grace of our parents who gave birth to us and nurtured us or gratitude for that. Here we mean not only our biological parents but parents in the sense of all the people in our lives who educated us and helped us survive. Teachers school teachers, other teachers. The third is the grace of fellow beings, because without them, how would we do anything at all? And the fourth is the grace of law, which means the laws of the Dharma as well as secular laws. I'm skipping a little bit here. How does that work? relationship between restoring our Buddha nature through spiritual practice and paying gratitude to other people can be understood in this way. Our founding master used the analogy of water. Water itself is very pure and full of life force. Wherever it goes, it nurtures the people who interact with it and allows all beings to thrive. But let's say that the water loses its original vitality for some reason and it becomes toxic and poisonous. Wherever this water goes, it harms the things it interacts with. Likewise, our original mind is pure and clear. It has that same kind of vitality and inherent purity that water has. If we can keep that purity in whatever we do, wherever you go in this society, you will produce a lot of beneficial results. But our mind, just like the toxic water, is tainted by our karma and our ignorance. And if we act with a poisonous mind, say a mind filled with greed, our mind, our life itself, can bring harm to our house, to our society, and to our nation. So again, the importance of, of purifying the mind through Zazen. Um, not necessarily before we can do anything socially or politically, but at least uh, to, as a parallel track because if we're not working on the mind, on our character, then uh, we're not likely, we're, we're likely to cause more trouble in our, even despite our best intentions in uh, working in the world.
One last question. I noticed on the Wan Buddhist website that there are a lot of mentions of St. Augustine, God, and other nods to Christianity. Why? It's unusual for Westerners to see Buddhism and Christianity put together that way. And then he says, Wan Buddhism emphasizes the universal origin of all religions. We believe that they are all eventually the same, although everything is labeled differently as a result of arising from different cultural backgrounds. We consider other religions as our brothers and sisters and try to work together in harmony with them. They are our family. But in terms of the, how can I say it, the hierarchy, Buddhism is the highest. Laughs. He laughs. So maybe some are brothers and sisters and others are more like distant relatives. (laughs) And again, he laughs. Uh, regardless, in one Buddhism, we try to cooperate and work with all the religions. So, um, if, if there's any superiority to Buddhism or Zen, it's only to the degree that we can appreciate the value of all religions. It's, it's if we can if we can detach ourselves from dogma and one-upmanship and sectarianism, um, and we uh, arguably we're more likely to do that in a practice. That, we, that, that enjoins us to get underneath labels, underneath words, underneath concepts, underneath religious t- names. In that sense, you can say it is the, the universal teaching in the, to the extent that it draws us beyond all such uh, differentiations. Our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four hours. Way 